A school fire is an experience that every student remembers. The alarm rings and everyone files out quickly and quietly until they're clear of the school. But few, if any, students are aware that one reason we do those tedious drills is because of what happened in the Buffalo suburb of Cheektowaga in March of 1954. This is the story of the Cleve Hill School Fire. During World War II, Erie County sent thousands of its young men overseas to fight in both the European and Pacific theaters of war. And when they returned, many of them took advantage of the Servicemen's Readjustment Act, better known as the GI Bill. In the years that followed, suburbs like Cheektowaga, located just northeast of Buffalo, grew as subdivisions blossomed all across the country. The development of highways linking the city and suburbs only fueled this rapid growth. At the war's end, Cheektowaga's Curtis Wright Aircraft Facility, which had employed so many during the war, was abandoned. But town leaders convinced the Westinghouse Corporation to take over the facility adjacent to the airport. And for the next 40 years, Westinghouse was a major town and regional employer. In the decade following the war, Cheektowaga's population grew from 25,000 to over 80,000 residents. The rapid increase was reflected in the enrollment of the town's eight school districts. Of those eight, the Cleveland Hill District served the northwest corner of Cheektowaga, from the Buffalo Line to Interstate I-90. This area was largely a working-class neighborhood full of starter homes and apartments. Prior to 1950, the district's students attended high school in the adjacent Amherst district. But burgeoning enrollment had led to the construction of Cleve Hill High School. As the student population continued to rise, an eight-classroom wooden annex was added between the high school and the elementary school. On Tuesday, March 30, 1954, the students of Cleveland Hill got an early spring surprise, a snow day. When the children returned Wednesday morning, everything seemed as it should. Students and teachers went about their day as they would any other. Just before noon, however, that would all change. In the newly constructed annex, Mr. Thomas Griffin's sixth-grade students were just settling into music class with Mrs. Siebold. June Mahaney, a 20-year-old aspiring teacher from Rosary Hill College, was halfway through her last day of student teaching in Siebold's class. 
Suddenly, that seemingly ordinary day was shaken by an explosion. Unaware of what was happening, many of the 30 students rushed toward the classroom door, only to find the hallway engulfed in smoke and flames. Acting quickly, Siebold and Mahaney moved the students toward the windows. They tried desperately to open them, but found that the windows, smaller than the standard size, were nailed or painted shut. They tried to break through the panes with desks and chairs, but grasping for them, they discovered that most had been bolted to the floor. With few options remaining, Siebold hollered for the students to break the windows with their fists and their elbows. One by one, the sixth graders began squeezing through the undersized openings to safety, tearing their flesh along the jagged glass. Mahaney and Siebold then struggled through the windows to escape just as the flames consumed the classroom. The blaze spread through the building not in minutes, but in seconds, as witnesses recounted. Mahaney described the horror as, quote, a 30-second nightmare. Meanwhile, a mile away, an amateur photographer named Nelson Frank was visiting with a friend when he saw smoke rising into the sky. We didn't hear any noise, he told a Buffalo Evening News reporter, but we saw a huge puff of smoke over the building. It looked as though it had gone right up through the roof. There's a big smokestack on the school, and for a minute, it looked as though the whole thing was in flames. Nelson and his friend hopped in their car and drove toward the fire. Parking near the school, he grabbed for his camera and hurriedly snapped through a roll of film. One of his photos, which was featured on the newspaper's front page, shows firefighters battling the blaze from only feet away as smoke engulfs the sky. Investigators would later use his photos and others taken in the early moments to ascertain the cause of the explosion. As news of the fire spread, firefighters, law enforcement officials, and medical support from neighboring towns rushed to provide assistance. More than 80 policemen from as far away as Akron converged on the scene to help their Cheektowaga brethren. Buffalo's acting police commissioner, Frank Dempsey, heard about the fire on WBEN and immediately instructed his secretary to contact Cheektowaga to offer assistance. When the chief couldn't be contacted, I decided to send as many men as possible to the fire scene, Dempsey stated. I felt that if Cheektowaga police didn't need our help, we could always bring our men back. Dempsey's proactive decision was the right one. His men were instrumental in keeping ambulance lanes clear and guarding the entrance to Edward J. Meyer Memorial Hospital, where nearly two dozen of the injured were admitted. Children's, sisters, and Kenmore Mercy Hospitals also admitted victims of the fire, treating them for smoke inhalation, varying degrees of burns, and other mental or physical traumas endured from the incident. Ten of the patients at Meyer Memorial were placed on the facility's danger list with severe burns. Mrs. Siebold was among them. The fire claimed the lives of ten students on site, Later, five others would die due to their burns. As one reporter wrote somberly, heartbroken and grim-faced parents went 
silently to the morgue to identify the charred bodies, some burned beyond recognition. Only fragments of clothing, belt buckles, shoes, bracelets, and rings provided clues to their identity. The day after the fire, April 1st, the Buffalo Evening News published the names and school photos of the victims, along with bios of their tragically abbreviated lives. There was Bruce Brand, a seventh grader and Cub Scout, who belonged to the Stock Traders Club of his local Presbyterian church. Verna Bagley, who played in the school orchestra and was gearing up for the upcoming performance of Hansel and Gretel. Marlene Dupont, a ward of Catholic Charities who was living with foster parents. Two of her foster sisters also attended the school, but thankfully made it to safety. There was Michael House, 11, who had a sibling in the school. House's father reported that his son's body was identified by his boots, a style which no other student wore. Elizabeth Lies was 12. Her mother, Mary, was a teacher in the school. Mrs. Lies rushed into the burning annex, but wasn't able to find her daughter. Remaining focused, she carried two other students to safety. Law enforcement on the scene reported that Lies staggered from the building after rescuing the children with bloodstains covering her dress. The parents of another victim, John Mendefic, were too upset to speak to reporters, rhetorically asking, what could a person say anyway? Their son was a Cub Scout who loved sports, especially basketball and baseball. 11-year-old Patricia Steger's parents were likewise at a loss for words. Harry Poss, the father of Blaine Poss, learned about the fire from his foreman at Bethlehem Steel. He and his wife sped to the school where they waited for five harrowing hours before getting word of their son. In the days that followed, friends and family recounted Blaine's heroism and how he courageously escorted three girls to safety before losing his life. Reba Smith, 11, was one of seven children, her family newcomers to the area. They had come from Pennsylvania just a year earlier. Barbara Watkins was also new to the area, having moved to the neighborhood from Buffalo the previous year. In the days to come, severe burns would claim the lives of five additional students, Patricia Blandowski, Donald Kelleher, Marlene Miller, Suzanne Jors, and George Hoffman. Blandowski was a Girl Scout, as was Miller and Jors. Donald Kelleher loved riding his bike, a recent Christmas present he couldn't stop talking about. George Hoffman was the fire's final victim. He held on in the hospital for just over a week, passing in the early morning hours of April 8th, just days shy of his 12th birthday. The Cleve Hill School fire took the lives of 15, but the tragedy shook the lives of countless survivors, families, and friends. Many that survived but were injured by the blaze faced long roads to recovery. Music teacher Melba Siebold suffered severe burns on her arms and back as she helped students escape. She'd spend two and a half months in the hospital undergoing skin grafts, 10 operations in all, including one on her vocal cords, which had to be repaired after the fire 
had left the one-time singer unable to do little more than whisper. Jackson Frank was another survivor. Jackson escaped the music room, but suffered burns over 58% of his body and had a metal plate inserted into his skull. A decade after the fire, he became part of the folk music movement that embodied the 1960s. In London, he met and performed with Paul Simon, Art Garfunkel, and other luminaries of the folk era. While Paul Simon spoke highly of his song, Blues Run the Game, it was Frank's 1965 song, Marlene, that reflected the trauma of his youth. The song was written for Marlene Dupont, Jackson's grade school sweetheart. While he escaped, she was identified only by a small remnant of cloth from her dress. Physically scarred by the fire, Jackson also bore mental scars, which eventually proved too daunting to overcome. He was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia and spent years in and out of mental institutions. He was also plagued by chronic joint pain, a direct result of the damage done by the fire to his parathyroid glands. Relentlessly tormented by his childhood trauma, Jackson's life is among the saddest stories one can tell. In 2014, his friend and caretaker, Jim Abbott, penned a biography of the songwriter, who passed away in 1999, titled, Jackson C. Frank, The Clear Hard Light of Genius. June Mahaney, the student teacher who helped usher the children through the classroom's broken windows, never really spoke about the fire. She married her high school sweetheart, Herbert Hillary, in June of 1954, just two months after the incident. In fact, the newlyweds were offered an all-expense-paid trip to Miami, gifted by teachers of that city. June and Herbert would start a family, a large family at that, with eight children. Herbert found work as a physicist for Union Carbide. In 1969, he was transferred to Terrytown, New York, and they bought a home in the tiny hamlet of Mayapak, from which June taught piano lessons. According to her eldest son, Terry, he and his siblings were largely unaware of the fire. They knew something had happened. They had heard their father mention it from time to time, but none of them knew the whole story the magnitude of the tragedy or the heroic role that their mother played. In fact, it wasn't until 2004 that he began to understand. That year, a Buffalo News reporter called the home in Mayapak where one of June's daughters answered the phone. The reporter inquired whether or not her mother would be attending the school's 50-year commemoration of the fire. That's when her now-adult children began asking questions. According to Terry, once they learned of what their mother had gone through, certain aspects of their lives began to make more sense, like why for years they refused to light the fireplace in their home. Sadly, on November 8, 2015, June Mahaney, now June Hillary, died at the age of 82.
In the wake of the tragedy, a grand jury was impaneled to determine the cause of and possible culpability for the explosion. After seven days, the jury issued a report to Justice William Munson, which exonerated two district employees, but they couldn't establish a cause. It seems that, in the end, either a faulty boiler or spontaneous combustion in a closet had sparked the blaze. Three weeks after the fire, Life magazine ran pictures of the boiler that showed structural holes that may have allowed coal gas to escape. While some students had noted odd odors in the annex, no one paid enough attention to the gas that was building up throughout the structure. Having already endured one unspeakable tragedy, local officials and school authorities worked to ensure that others wouldn't follow. You see, Cleve Hill wasn't the only school with a wooden annex. Other area schools dealt with booming post-war populations in similar fashions. A report found that an additional seven wooden annexes were in use throughout the city. Under the leadership of Dr. Parmer Ewing, superintendent of Buffalo Schools, three of these structures would be demolished by the end of the year, and another would be abandoned. Safety precautions were taken in the remaining buildings to ensure student safety. In the decades that have passed since the Cleve Hill School fire, the school and community have honored their fallen students in a number of ways. There's a memorial in Cheektowaga Town Park surrounded by 15 crabapple trees, one for each victim. In 2004, the Cleveland Hill Union Free School District honored those lost with an engraved stone marker. On some anniversaries, the children's names have been read aloud, accompanied by the toll of a bell for each of the fallen. In 2014, the 60th anniversary of the Cleveland Hill fire, New York State Senator Tim Kennedy noted that in the wake of the tragedy, New York State implemented sweeping changes that required schools to have rescue windows, evacuation drills, alarms at local fire departments, and new construction codes. As a result, the 1954 fire was the last time a public school child died in a school fire in the state of New York. In 2015, the Cleve Hill School District debuted an interactive exhibit at the school which guides users through the history of the fire and teaches how the tragedy guided public policy creation on fire preparedness and student safety. Just three weeks ago, March 31st, 2023, marked the 69th anniversary of the fire, a fire that ranks among the deadliest in Western New York history. Few, including the Richmond Hotel Fire of 1887 and the Husted Milling Company explosion of 1913, have claimed more lives than the tragedy at Cleve Hill. This episode of the Buffalo History Museum podcast was written by Erie County historian Doug Kohler and myself, Anthony Greco. If you enjoy the show, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us. Also, be sure to tell your friends and family. 
The Buffalo History Museum podcast receives operating support from Erie County, the City of Buffalo, the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of Governor Kathy Hochul and the New York State Legislature. Additional support is provided by m and Bank and from our donors, members, and friends.